Uh, if you open your Bible to um, Genesis chapter 1, it's right after the table of contents, and maybe an introduction to your Bible, I would uh, recommend that you read the preface to your Bible at some point, not tonight, but not right now at least, maybe tonight, uh, to figure out what kind of translation you use, um, but we're going to look at um, Genesis chapter 1 tonight. Uh, I feel like I have a lot to cover in Genesis chapter 1, so, um, so buckle up. We're going to hit it pretty hard, okay? Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, I want to do this series, so um, I'm thankful that I get to do this again. Last, last year, I spoke on Ruth. We called it Ruth-tober. I'm, I'm taking uh, suggestions for this year's uh, you know, theme or whatever, or title, uh, Ruth Tober was last year. Genesis Tober just doesn't sound right to me. It's got to be like a one-syllable word, like good Tober, <laughs> curse Tober. I don't know. Uh, so you can uh, let me know on that uh, if you have any. I've, I've already received some suggestions that um, haven't been great so far, but if you have any ideas, I would, uh, that, that would be fun. Um, but Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1 through 11, uh, you're, we're going to see some themes throughout. Good and evil, we're going to see blessing and cursing and um, how those things play out. So uh, in Genesis 1, it's going to be mostly on the left side of that image, good and blessing. And then from there on out, we'll see how it goes, okay? Uh, Genesis 1. We're going to take a literary approach to Genesis uh, as we look at it. We're not going to take a necessarily a scientific approach, if you know what I'm saying by that. Um, we're not going to... Uh, take a history approach either. We're going to look at it as it was written, a narrative, a story in Genesis. Genesis, a story. So it's not a science approach. It's not, um, uh, I'm sorry, it's not an answers in Genesis approach. Uh, they've, they've done some really good work um, in the sciences to help defend creationism as legitimate so I'm thankful for what they do. But some of the questions that we ask of Genesis sometimes aren't even in the author's mind as he's writing. I don't believe there's some kind of hidden or secret meaning behind what the author, you know, behind the meaning, behind the, what was written uh, that we wouldn't understand until uh, X amount of thousands of years later. Sometimes we ask questions of the text that the text isn't trying to answer. And we ought to be careful with that. Uh, I, I took a class in seminary, Genesis, it was called Genesis 1 through 11. So here we go. And um, uh, I was really thankful for that class. That, that class really helped me. The professor, Dr. Kaiser, he really helped me think through how to read the scriptures and what questions we ought to be asking of the scriptures. That is, questions that the scriptures are trying to answer. So, um, for example, one of the most popular questions that, that come, comes up, uh, typically I hear it from unbelievers, but also from uh, teens, middle schoolers, adults, whatever. Uh, the question that's asked of the text is, who did Adam and Eve's sons marry to multiply and fill the earth? Right? We get that question. Some of us probably have thought of that question before. Is that a question that the text is trying to answer? I guess we'll see when we get there. But um, my answer to that is um, the text doesn't answer it. But I don't think God, the creator of all things, got to the second generation and was like, oh man, what if they only have boys? 
Well, I, well, I guess we messed up there. You know, I think like God had enough foresight. The God who created all things had enough foresight to deal with that. So I don't know if, if there are women created by God at that time, but the text isn't trying to answer that question. So it's like, we'll just let that be as it may, okay? But we want to read it um, not as a history book, not as a science book, not as a history book, but as, as a story. Now, sometimes when I say the word story, people have in their mind fake. That's not at all what I'm saying. I believe it is true. Sometimes we think, oh, those are just stories. Sometimes we use that term. That, But what I'm saying is the genre is narrative. It is story. And so as we look at this, that's what we want to do. We want, we want to get to story. So think about how that affects the way we read. If it's just a, histor- a history book or a science book, um, we read the history book like, okay, here's the things that happened. What can we learn from what happened? Um, and that's okay in some senses, but if it's a story, we're looking at what is the author, what is the theological point that the author's trying to get at? What is he trying to teach us in this? See what I'm saying? So what things do we look for? We look for, when we, when we study narrative, we look for speech. That's going to help um, slow the narrative down. It's going to uh, point out what the, the speaker is. It points out the character of the character of the speaker and it gives us some insight there. Uh, repetition. Uh, when things are repeated, we're like, we're going to hone in there. We're going to look at things that, words that seem to be unneeded. Why does he add that there? It doesn't seem important, but it might be drawing our attention to something important there. We're going to look at the context, see what's going on there as well. But the goal here is the authorial intent. What is the author trying to say? Now, a, 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 note, a quick note about the author. Moses is writing. He's educated in the highest home in the most advanced city in the world of his day. He's a highly educated man. Moses is. And when writing at, in this time period, it's not as if he has all the space in the world to write. So much care is going, it's difficult to get like a pen and paper, if you will. It's difficult to, it's expensive. It's difficult to put that together. And for him to be able to write, he's going to use his, he's going to pick his words very carefully. There, it is not thrown together haphazardly. But he chooses his words with great care. And of course, with the Holy Spirit's guidance. Um, a quick note about uh, the structure of Genesis. The, the structure of Genesis is um, Genesis is structured around uh, um, a word in Hebrew is toledot, but it's uh, the generations of, or. This is the account of that we see. So look with me real quick in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, in the ESV it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Okay, now look with me um, at, verse, at chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Okay, so we see these genealogies that seem to be uh, structuring this book. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Okay, keep going. Chapter uh, 10, verse 1. These are the generations of Japheth. And so, um, 
and then chapter 10 verse, or chapter 11 verse 10. So there's going to be smaller stories within the big story of Genesis, and they're going to be separated by these genealogies, the generations of the account of. Uh, um, so uh, one of the themes that we're going to see in Genesis is this idea of good and evil, blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing, good and evil. In Genesis 1, blessing and good is going to be prominent. Genesis 2 through 11, or Genesis, uh, sorry, verse, chapters 1 and 2, good and, uh, and blessing. Uh, Genesis 3 through 11, curse is prominent. The curse is prominent. It traces the spread of sin once humans know good and evil. And it seems like this downward spiral towards, verse, uh, towards chapter 11. Chapter 12 uh, and following through chapter 50 is, is sometimes called the patriarchal narrative. Um, it's the, the, the story of, our, of the fathers. Blessing replaces the cursing except for warnings for those who oppose God's plan and oppose God's people. What happens when people act rightly, we're going to see, and then what happens when people act, or act in an evil way, we're going to see. We'll, we'll see what happens in blessing and in cursing. And here's the thing. It's going to be a bit of a spoiler alert, but God accomplishes all things for good. All things for good. Okay? Flip like 50 pages to your right. Okay, go to Genesis chapter 50. And look how this story ends. Okay? Look how this story ends. It's somewhat of a rehearsal, but look at chapter 50 in verse um, 20. Chapter 50 in verse 20. As for you, this is, remember, man, the Joseph narrative. When Joseph is talking to his brothers, he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Think about that. That's the big statement at the end of the Joseph narrative. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What does that hearken back to? We're going to get to in Genesis 1. Good. God saw that it was 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 good. And God saw everything that he made, and he said, it is very good. And then after all these things happen in Genesis, this downward spiral through chapter 11, and then seeming God stepping in in chapter 12 and following and saying, I want to bless all the families of the earth. In chapter 12 through 50, it's like headed towards God seems like, and then all these terrible things happen along with that crazy things that we look at and we look at some parts of the story and we're like a little bit shameful about these things like can we talk about can we actually read Genesis to our kids there's some terrible things that happen but what people have meant for evil God means for good And we're going to see that paradigm in Genesis chapter 1. He accomplishes all things for good. 
He takes all this crazy and terrible and sinful and hurtful stuff that happens in Genesis, and he means it for good. So let's take a look. Flip back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's take a look at this creation account. The creation is going to build upon itself. Sometimes we can get into this mode of like, here's what happened on day one, here's what happened on day two, here's what happened on day three. Now there's going to be a quiz next week on that, so memorize it really well. And it's good to memorize what happened on these. It's good to memorize those things, don't get me wrong. But look, we can get into that, that mode and forget what the author is trying to do here. Don't miss what the author is doing. The creation account is going to build. It's, the creation account is going somewhere. It's going to emphasize something for us. So when we read it, don't just look for what was created. Look for what the author is emphasizing. Notice repetition. Notice patterns that are developed. Notice speech. Notice when the term good is used and when it's not used. Notice when and what God blesses as well and how he blesses. This chapter's, chapter emphasizes what is good and what is blessed. So, as we read, as we study this, let's look to what is the purpose? What is he trying, what is the author trying to get to here as we read? So we'll go through each of these things each day, and we'll look at pre-creation, then we'll look at the days, and then we'll look at some implications for our life tonight. Okay, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a big, there's a big summary statement in verse 1. Big summary statement to start in verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. But notice what was there. Earth was there. Formless and void was how the earth was described. It is, as um, one of my professors, Dr. Kaiser, says, it's unproductive and uninhabitable. One person said it like this. It is waste and void, or formless and emptiness. So think about those two things. It's without form and it is void. It's empty. We're going to see somewhat of a pattern flow from those two words. Okay? And then he emphasizes it once again while this darkness is over the earth. But the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, something's coming. Something's coming. So let me, let me show you this chart real quick. Um, I did that right. Okay, yeah, fantastic. Okay, so look, look how this is structured. You have days one through three and days four through five separated into, into two categories there. And I want you to see, hopefully you can see that uh, okay. Um, formless and void is the way the earth is set up before day one. And day one, you have light with darkness. Light is created into the darkness. And look at day four, though. That corresponds to day one. Lights are created for the day and night. Okay? Day two, sea and sky are created. And then corresponding to that is day five. There's creatures for the sea and the sky. Okay? Day three, there's an earth 
land is created, but not just land, fertile land is created. And that corresponds with day six, creatures for the fertile earth. So as we go through this, notice the structure there. And remember I said this is going to build upon itself. We already see it building in this kind of structure. Um, there's, creation is set into two phases, formless, given form, and then filled. Okay? Filled. Day one. Look at verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So and on day one, God spoke and there was light. He created light. Uh, God says and light. God saw that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God named the day and the night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Pretty succinct. But he's setting a pattern for what we're going to see in the next days. There's a pattern set here. And you see that. God says, God saw, God separated, God named, and there was evening this morning the first day. Day two. Now, day two is lengthened through some repetition. Okay? Not only does God say in verse 6, but in verse 7, there's a, rep, a, a repeated thing there, something happened that God, God made the expanse and separated. So, verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So God said, and God made the heavens, the sky. There's extended speech. And, um, uh, God, God made, God separated the waters below and the waters above. Um, God named that expanse between the waters. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Day three. Day three has two parts. There's two creative acts. It's succinct, but it's also lengthened, in the second part, through repetition as well. So look at verse 9 through 13. Um, and God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now that looks a lot like day one. That structure looks a lot like day one. The second half of day three is going to look a lot like day two. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which, there was, in, in, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So God creates land. He creates, the, he creates earth, land. But not just any kind of earth. He creates an earth that is fertile, that is producing. And God saw that it was good. He says it twice on day three. He says it on day one. He doesn't say it on day two, but he says it twice on day three. God saw that it was good. Day four, the second half of creation. There's speech here, and then there's two 
repetitious statements, narrative statements. God made and God set. You see that? So in, in day one, he's like, let there be light. There was light. On other days, he's like, let there be this, and then God made this. And here is, let there be this, God made this, and God set this. There's this repetition. Do you, do you see it building upon itself? You see day four building upon the rest of the creation. God said he made the sun, moon, and stars. I love this. He creates two great lights, the greater one to rule the day and the lesser one to rule the night and the stars. I love how that's just like snuck in there. Look at verse 16. Actually, let's read from verse, verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and separate, uh, to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them, be lights in the expanse, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. You ever seen the milk of the Milky Way before? I remember the first time I saw the milk of the Milky Way. I was in Leadville, Colorado. And it was, at that time at least, it was the highest incorporated city in the lower 48. And we got to see the milk. And I was like, that is a lot of stars. You know how God created the stars? All those stars, he just said it. You know how it's accounted for in the scriptures? And the stars. All of that is like, we need the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night and like stars. (laughs) Boom. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day five. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So God said, and then God created sea creatures and birds. God saw that it was good. And then God speaks a blessing. This is a new component. He speaks a blessing. And the blessing is that they would be fruitful and multiply. We're going to see that phrase come up a few more times in the book of Genesis, especially in Genesis 1 through 11. Be fruitful and multiply. So there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Do you, you feel the creation grow, growing? Do you feel the, the narrative strengthening? So there's light and darkness, and then there's lights for the day and for the night. And there's sea and sky, and there's creations, creatures for the sea and the sky. And there's a fertile earth, and then verse 6, it's building. And there are, again, there's two parts to day 3, and here in, chap, in, ver, in day, day 6, there's two parts to day 6. Day 6, part 1, verse 24. And let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Day six, part one. God said, God made, and he, he created living creatures for the earth. Beasts. And then... Day six, part two. This is the most literarily developed part of the creation. 
There's been a building to this point. He's going to spend the most time here. This is the pinnacle of creation. God speaks and God made, and then two speeches by God, one a blessing, one a direct address. He speaks right to the creature on day six, part two. Verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God speaks, and God creates, and God blesses, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. This is the climax of the creation. The creation of mankind is the climax of the creation. It's all been building towards this. But the goal of creation is day seven. Day seven. Thus, this is chapter two, verse one. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see the repetition there? This is the goal of creation, the rest. Rest. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Well, that was a lot. That was a lot to take in, right? There's a lot of things in there that we could cover. There's probably a lot of questions that you might have in your mind. And I don't have the time, uh, probably not the energy either, uh, to cover all of those things. There's a lot there that we could think through. But I want to cover just a few implications. Okay? Implications for our life. If this is true, What we just read, Genesis chapter 1 and a little bit into Genesis chapter 2, if that is true, what implications does this have for our lives? I think endless implications. I mean, just notice how it starts. God created the heavens and the earth. Number one. Implication number one. God is the sovereign creator. God is the sovereign creator. Ever talk with an unbeliever and they say, yeah, I believe in God. You ever hear that? Like, okay, they're not Christian, but they're like, yeah, I believe in God. And you're like, okay. And is it like you're just trying to get me off your back or what's going on? Like, you believe in God? Okay, what God? What God do you believe in? Did he create everything? Did he reveal himself in some way? Did he speak to us? Did he give us his word? 
How do, you, how do you know this God that you speak of? Is the God of the Bible the one that you believe in? Or did you make up your own God? And like, well, I really like this part about God that I think is probably him. I think I like this over here from this religion maybe about God. Like, are, have you created the God? News for you if, you, if you've made up your own God, then you've placed yourself above this God that you have created because you're the creator of that God. If you decide what kind of God you're going to follow, you've just created a God in your own image. Exact, exactly flipped from the creation account, right? God creates mankind in his image. And if we say, no, I believe in God, but he looks like this, and we make that up, we've just created a God in our own image. Exactly flipped from reality. Or, Christian, do you say that you believe in this God, but don't actually live like it? Do we live day after day without reference to God? Do we pray as if God is real? And he is the sovereign creator. He's created everything and he's in control of everything. Do we pray that way? Do we believe that he has revealed himself in this way? Do we start our day with confessing our submission to him and our desire to follow him no matter what because he is the sovereign creator? He is the only one worthy of worship. Humbly living for him. What is man that, Lord, you are mindful of him? Psalm 8. Why would the creator God have anything to do with little old me, we might think, but he does. And he sent his son to prove it. So follow him. Submit to him. He is the sovereign creator. Do you believe it? Do you live like you believe that God is the sovereign creator over all things? heard one pastor say it this way. He created this thing. He knows how it works. We better submit to him. Follow him with our lives. Submit to him and follow him. He created all things. Follow him. Number two, implication number two, God takes what is unproductive and uninhabitable or formless and void he takes something that's unproductive and uninhabitable and gives it life and vitality. It's without form and void. It's unproductive and uninhabitable. God takes this kind of situation and creates life and vitality. And I believe this is a paradigm for us. His words create. All things obey his voice. And as I was sitting, listening in a counseling situation from one of our members, he said this, boundaries give life. And that's the paradigm we see here, isn't it? Boundaries give life, make room for life. God's rules Laws, commands are set up to give us life. Teens, young adults, 
maybe others. You may be tempted to look at the scriptures and see how God has called us to live, and then you think, you think to yourself, all these rules are bringing me down, man, right? Like, man, all these, I got to follow all these things, but like, I'm, just, I'm a teenager. I just want to have like, fun, and it seems like all these rules are bringing me down. Can I just be free? If I could just do whatever I want to do and live how like, I want to live, then I would be happy, right? No. No, you won't. You won't be happy. You won't, you won't actually truly live. You'll be empty. As I heard in a, in a song, we live on a planet of empty wells. We think there's satisfaction, there's something of sustenance there, but there isn't. Remember when you were younger and you thought this way? If I could just be free. And, um, and then I would be happy and things would just be fine. But God, the sovereign creator of all things, has given us a paradigm where he takes something that is formless and void, gives it boundaries and creates life. And this sovereign God is a good God. His ways give life. And so often we're tempted to seek life in other ways. Do you ever, you ever see um, a professional athlete get interviewed after a championship, after they won the championship? And what's a, one phrase that I often hear is, yeah, man, it's really, I'm just kind of waiting for it to sink in. You ever hear that phrase? Just waiting for it to sink in. Guess what? It's not going to sink in like you think it's going to sink in. I mean, I've heard like the greatest basketball player ever to live say that. As far as I know. I don't know if they played basketball in ancient Near East, but as far as I know, like the great Michael Jordan, of course. (laughs) I've heard him say that, still looking for satisfaction in his life. I've heard someone say the greatest football player, quarterback of all time, um, allegedly. Uh, I've heard him say the same thing. He's got six rings. Satisfy? No, he just wants more and more. And it's not going to satisfy. I mean, if you would have told me that in high school that you, you're going to be the greatest basketball player ever, I'm like, yes, that's it. I'm set. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to have all the money that I want, everything that I want. I'm going to be so happy. Then you look at the greatest basketball player of all time, and you're like, without Jesus, nothing. God gives, gives rules, and his rules make room for growth, for life. They are good for us. Right? Just like the example, say, a basketball game. There's rules so that things can happen. Remember I was in, at camp one time in fifth grade, and I was so frustrated because the, the counselor decided to do something where they, they would change the rules in the middle of the game to, like, somehow test us. And me, not that I'm competitive or anything, I was, like, so upset. It's like, no, you can't change which basket you're going to in the middle of the game. It doesn't work that way. And they would do that, I think, somehow in this sick, twisted way, in my opinion. They were trying to teach us something, and I was, like, so upset. I had, haven't, had and have issues. Okay, um, but boundaries 
create opportunity for something to happen. So there's boundaries in marriage, there's rules in parenting, those things, if they're from God, they're good. The creation account shows us that boundaries here give room for life. This is God taking what is unproductive and uninhabitable and giving it life. God creates life and he, he still gives life. This is seen so clearly in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God takes something that is messed up, it's unproductive, it's, un, it's not suitable for spiritual life, and he gives it life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 said, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He creates life in a spiritually dead person, and he still does that today. He does this by giving us grace. He gives us the grace, the gift of faith. Place your faith in him. Believe in him today. You want life? Follow him. Some of you think that there is life outside submission to Christ, but there is not. There might be low times when we allow sin to creep into our life as followers of Jesus. Depression, anxiety, these kinds of things. Anger, but joy comes in the morning if we submit to Jesus. We are forgiven because of his justice and his forgiveness. There might be low times, but joy comes in the morning. We will be victorious in this life or the next. It's not a difficult, it's not an easy thing to follow Jesus, but man, is it joyous. Number three, man is the climax of the creation narrative. Man is the climax of creation. The, the whole creation account is, is cli- it, it climaxes here. Now, the goal of, like I said, is day seven, the rest, but the climax is day six, part two. Day seven is still the goal, rest at peace, everything in its right place, and that's where we're headed to. It's a paradigm there, too. Think of the final phase of the story of the Bible, the story of the gospel, restoration, restoring back to a kind of day seven rest. That day is coming. Day six here is the climax of the story, day six, part two. How do we know that? Each day there's a steady escalation. Each day gets more and more complex, more elements added. There's speech. There's more and more developed speech, um, more, more and more details, giving, giving a blessing. He speaks directly to his creature here, man and woman. It's building. And notice the image of God. You see that? Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, I think of image, and the way I understand the image of God is, think of, think of it this way, image as icon. Okay, image as icon, as representative. So think of, think of the image that's stamped on an ancient letter, sealed with the king's image. It represents the king. We are to be his representatives as people of this earth. And so we carry some of his attributes for a purpose. All other Living creatures were made according to their kind. Did you pick up on that repetition? According to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind, over and over. They're made according to its kind. Man is made in the image of God. So what does this mean? Some kind of connection between um, the uh, unity in plurality we see. You remember seeing that? Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's plural, the divine plural, but there's unity there. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. Images, 
icon. Some kind of connection between the singular and plural there. Both humanity and deity are presented in both singular and plural terms. And in some way, mankind is representative of God through unity in plurality. Unity in plurality through marriage. Unity in plurality through the church as new creation. We represent God as a new creation with a kind of unity in plurality or unity in diversity. There's plurality there. There's diversity there. Man is the image of God in a kind of representative way. Image, of, image as icon. Well, um, there's a lot to cover there. <laughs> image as icon. A, a, um, some people will say that we bear God's image because we have rationale, creative abilities, relational abilities, and I think that's only partially true. What about, but what about those humans who don't have these things? Man is the highest form of life and are representatives of God. Every single person represents God by nature by nature of their personhood. Infants, invalids, all mankind. And man is called to subdue, rule, and have dominion over everything from verse 28. And this is for all man. All man. A big point I want to make comes from this. This all starts with God. He does not need us. He is completely self-existent, independent of all things. God will always be, and no one can change that. And we're humbled that he desires our love and our worship. He doesn't need us to be on his team, but yet he calls us to be a part of his family, and he sent his son for that purpose. God creates man and immediately has a relationship with him as he speaks to him. Our relationship with God has been compromised because of Genesis chapter 3. We'll get there. God still desires that relationship with mankind. So, do you have a relationship with God? Do you? Not, not do you go to church on Sunday nights. Do you love God? and have a relationship with him. Really, look at our life. Look at your life. Do you have a relationship with the one true God? Do you talk to him? Do you submit to him? Do you involve God in decisions? Do you involve his will and his desires in your life decisions? Submit to him. Follow him. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of this God. Do you want a relationship with him? A kind of relationship that recognizes who he is and who you are, creator and creature. So if he is the creator of all things, we ought to live like we believe that. Submission to the ruler of all things. And God has the ability to take a, a dead person and give him life because he has sent his son to take the penalty for our sin. And if we choose to follow him, we get relationship with God. We get life. Let's pray to this end.
Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being the sovereign ruler and creator of all things. Lord, help us to live like we believe that to be true. We would submit to you in every part of our life. Lord, if there's someone here today that has not given their life to you, will you cause them, will you give them grace, give them faith, so that their dead spiritual life will be made alive. Lord, help us to be submitted to you. Thank you that you do these things, you work in this way. Help us to look at your teachings, your laws, as the psalmist does, that we would delight in the teaching, in the law of the Lord, and meditate on your law day and night. So thank you for the way that you're working in our lives and the way that you're rescuing people even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name.